Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com though people might be feeling that unsettled restlessness of anxiety and uncertainty i think that we have to keep talking about it because there's still a lot of places where that's not as accepted or not as talked about From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, the legendary Julie Larson, speaker, educator, psychotherapist, and luminary legacy young adult cancer advocate. As one of the few people who've been consistently working in the same profession they actually went to school for, you know, Julie may consider herself a Midwestern gal transplant to the big city, but after more than 15 years in the space, She's more than earned her credibility as one of the early progenitors of the young adult cancer movement. Her first not-so-shabby big stint was to essentially create from scratch the first adolescent and young adult cancer program for cancer care, just to give you some perspective. Now, if you don't know what cancer care is, we get into it during the show, but just know that this was a huge deal in the annals of patient advocacy and young adult cancer survivorship programming. I was privileged enough to work with her just as that effort was getting built out, and I've watched her rise to literal superstardom in our community. As someone who was there, quote unquote, before social media became the best thing, then the worst thing, and now a somewhat tolerable and small doses thing, Julie has a vantage and a perspective on how far we've come, and yet how far we still need to go. From the days of MySpace to today's shitstorm of COVID, telehealth, and mental health calamity, Julie Larson is the voice you want on the other end of that phone call to help make some sense of the madness, and you're about to find out why. Enjoy the show. Julie Larson, fancy meeting you here. Hey there, Matt Zachary. How are you? Fancy meeting you here. The dawn of civilization of the young adult cancer movement come to preeminence right here on this show. Well, that's a lot. But, you know, here we are. I'm sitting kind of in on I'm sitting on the floor. It's very fancy sitting on the floor outside of my closet. It's really cool. This is COVID interview with style. <laughs> with, with style. I'm, I'm noticing all the things that are on my closet floor, which probably I shouldn't be noticing. That <laughs> lack of organization. And what the listeners don't know is that we just finagled through cords, cables, and technology for 30 minutes to get this to work. And we're now angling for uh, 
corded landlines and copper phone calls from the days of yore when shit just worked. I know, but that's what I was telling you is that back in the days of the Stupid Cancer Show, you wanted me to always call in on a landline and I didn't have that. So I always came down and sat beside you and we did this. That would be way easier to sit with you at, with the, in your fancy studio. Wait, are you saying people used to be in the same place at the same time? I know. Crazy, right? Don't we miss that? We miss that. Because it's you and I were just talking as we were trying to figure out my levels about, you know, my volume was going all up. And I was like, well, I just won't use as much energy. But that's like what we're we're missing energy. I mean, I think we're connecting. We're finding ways to connect. We're making do. We're really doing all these Herculean, resilient things to, to find each other. But I so miss the energy of being face to face, right? Do you think that's going to be like this, um, like the rubber band's going to snap so far in the other direction that we're going to just only want to be outdoors with each other for like days at a time and never go home and not shower? (laughs) We may. But you know what? It's funny that you say that because I think there is like burgeoning, like writing and research and, you know, exploring about the fact that a lot of people are finding it really awkward to reconnect because they've been so isolated or they've been doing it in such, you know, kind of archaic ways over the phone or Zoom or whatever, that when you are in front of somebody, it's kind of awkward to share that space. You got to kind of refigure that energy out, especially I, I work with a lot of young adults, obviously, and um, thinking about dating and, and sitting with somebody that you don't know, how do you start conversations? So to your point, I think there could be a boomerang of like, how, how do I do this? I've lost some skill. Yeah, and we both have young kids, and this is going to be like our 9-11, like, where were you? It's like, they're going to be this way. Like, where were you when this happened? Because I had no friends, and then I had friends, and then I had no friends again. I know. No, really, it is. I think we, they really are. It's interesting. I was just talking, my, my fifth grader is um, starting a new unit in science class, and they're studying germs very appropriate (laughs) to be studying germs. And I ironically have a brother-in-law who is head of um, safety and efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine. Oh, wow. Right. Yes. Hello there. Hi, kind of big. So he is um, going to, he had convinced him and he's willing to zoom in and teach their class a little bit about, you know, why do we have vaccines and what's the basic recipe of a vaccine and what is it? But, but it's kind of really fascinating that, that that's all happening in the midst of all of this too. And, and so when I was, when I was telling the teachers that I was like, Hey, what a incredible historical opportunity for our fifth graders, right? You learned, I learned about germs in fifth grade. So did you, we all learned about germs, but what a wild way to be able to kind of position that into the real world. What's happening. That is the deep end of the pool version of getting acclimated to science. I know. I know. I did ask my daughter. I was like, now, do you know the anatomy of a cell? We're going to need to start with the basics. Today's episode brought to you by mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. I know I had to do a quick review in my head too, but yeah. So anyway, I think you're right that this is such a historical time and our kids will remember this in so many unique ways. And I try to remember that as a mom, right? As a parent, like, oof, what am I, how is this all going to lay out in the future? You know, I'm, I go back to our origin story, which my listeners love to hear some of the spelunking crap, but <laughs> back in the day, the word psychosocial, I'd never heard that term before because I wasn't academic, but <laughs> was that really just like pre-secret, like nerd code for mental health? 
Totally. Yeah, psychosocial, you mean there's psychological, social like impact? Yes. I remember too, when I first graduated from grad school, from social work school and being a social worker really resonated with me. Like I felt true to like my social work roots and like the like down in the trenches with people. Um, and it felt very odd to be considered a psychotherapist. That sounds very Freudian to me. Right. And now I feel like, right, that sounds really weird. Psychotherapist. Like I would never say that word. It sounded too analytic. But but now I feel like we are. The other thing that I think has really happened with COVID is that it's also been a, a mental health pandemic and that our mental health is taking center stage. And so it's easier to sometimes say those words or be able to be okay with it. So yeah. But psychosocial, you're right. It is, was the, it's just the basics of mental health. I was listening to one of Sanjay Gupta's uh, shows and he's, he's like super nerdy, amazing guy. But the fact that we as a society take for granted that we are a little more woke about mental health than we ever have been before came in handy in advance of this pandemic happening in 1918, like you barely knew what plumbing was, yeah. let alone how this was affecting kids in school and whatnot. But at the same time today, we went into this knowing this is going to totally be a clusterfuck. What can we do to mitigate it? Has that helped or hurt the fact that everything is now mental health or it should be all about mental health. Well, you're talking to a therapist, so I'm going to be a bit biased. <laughs> and I do believe that, you know, mental health is, it's related to everything, right? And mental health is related to how our bodies work biologically, physically, you know? So I do think it's related to everything. I will say when you say, when you say we're kind of a little more woke, that there are differences regionally and culturally, you know, you know, my story that I lived in New York city for 19 years and now I live in the Midwest and, and I kept my practice in New York city despite living in the Midwest. So I was doing this whole virtual deal, like well before COVID-19 and there are differences still in the way mental health is perceived and uh, in different places of our country. So I think we've still got room to move. And um, some ways, though, people might be feeling that unsettled restlessness of anxiety and uncertainty. I think that we have to keep talking about it because it's still there's still a lot of places where that's not as accepted or not as talked about or seen as a problem. Agree. And, and you've been at this for a very long time in the sense of like back when social work was just, oh, what do you do? I'm a social worker. What is that? And today's like, how do I not know about this necessary thing that has to help me? And yeah. we've really moved, again, in terms of like overusing the word woke, which I can't get away with that much anymore because I'm an old guy. <laughs> but awareness of the fact that when bad shit happens to good people, you're going to need a little bit of a helping hand. And your friends and family are can be wonderful in some cases. Peers can be wonderful. But there's always a need not to go the Woody Allen therapy you know, route, but to have a human being you can relate to that gets you that isn't necessarily a friend, but you can have some faith and trust in. Has it been easier over the years to get adoption to that? You mentioned different cultures yeah. and communities have different perceptions of whether this is important or not. Yeah, no, I, I do. I also think that the way, I don't know, maybe, I don't, I don't know, I can't speak for all of mental health, but, you know, I think that mental health has changed and becoming increasingly more accessible and really, um, I think of it as the mental gem, you know, that when you go for therapy now a days, there's certainly, there are still people that where you lay on the couch and you talk about your childhood and, you know, <laughs> latent fears. And that's 100% always part of what's going on for you, right? We can't take away that history. 
But I think that more and more people are talking about mindfulness and talking about kind of mind body and the way in which you in your living room or you laying in bed at wide awake at 2am can learn some skills and build some muscles to take care of yourself. So your therapist may be helping you untangle patterns of behavior and what happened with your mom's inedible lasagna. I don't know, (laughs) but, but may also be teaching you and kind of be helping to educate you on how to take care of yourself in smart ways. And I think that that's really powerful. I think that, that we need to begin to think about therapy as kind of like going to the mental gym or going to a class or we're learning these skills and building these muscles so that you can do the job of taking care of yourself and understanding. Well, I think through the lens of history, I'm, this is coming up as of this taping, I'm nearly 25 years from my original diagnosis. And I remember mm-hmm. being told in the 90s, get over it. You know, like you'll be fine. And I'm sitting here like miserable, depressed, alone, isolated, no, no, no future. And this idea of being given a helping hand of commiseration and uh, identity was just few and far between. And when I first met, you know, the the initial clan of individuals that introduced me to this idea of cancer survivorship, like I never heard that word before either. And then Livestrong came out with the word practical. I like I never heard like practical issues of cancer. Oh, you mean my going mm-hmm. fucking stir crazy at three in the morning? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was nice to mm-hmm. see that become a thing that is now a mm-hmm. real thing. But you had stepped into this like literally kind of the, the deep end of the early days at cancer care. And just for the listeners, what is cancer care? So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit. It's been around for a long time, much longer than anybody ever. I think it's they just had their 75th anniversary, maybe. Right. Yeah. And it provides free support services for anyone impacted by a cancer diagnosis. So, so many organizations are specific to a diagnosis or specific to a type of, you know, survivor. And Cancer Care really is working with every diagnosis, caregivers, and the bereaved. So, it was a great learning. I, I, I always fondly say I grew up at Cancer Care. I kind of, that's where I cut my teeth. And that's that's where I really understood the foundation of how a cancer diagnosis impacts people emotionally, socially, you know, mentally, you know, all of those things. And then, and then as you know, you and I got involved because I, um, was attuned to the fact that a diagnosis was different for adolescents and young adults. And then to your point was right there at the beginning of the AYA movement. And that just kind of I don't know, it gripped my heart. That became like a passion. So that's like a group of people that I just really enjoy working with. And and that's kind of where I, how my trajectory of cancer support. Right. The reason I bring it up, of course, on as many episodes of my show as I can, is just to remind listeners of how far we've actually come. And there's always yeah. improvements that can be made, but to literally speak to the people who were there in the early 2000s when this was finally becoming something that mattered, that was billable, that was free, that was available, yeah. that you were made aware of when you started cancer, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know, you start cancer. Welcome to the cancer store. Here's Julie, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I don't know, like, I mean, you say that, you know, here you, by your maybe medical team or those first people that you connected with when you were diagnosed, they say, you know, get over it or can keep moving. But then when you found others, I mean, how was that for you? I mean, what did that, what did that give you? The finding of others that when you said commiserate, like what, what, where did you find in that? The word I use is permission. And it gave me permission to be me and accept to the extent that I could that this happened to me or is currently happening to me. And it's not going to solve anything, 
like biologically, it's not going to change the course of my risk of what's going to happen next, but it gave me permission to accept that this is my me now and that here are some people and even meeting social workers and, and coordinators and nurses, it was a level of empathy I had not been prepared to receive and accept. And that for me is what defines peer-to-peer support. And what you stood for and what all the others who've now come after you stand for and what the entire bailiwick of oncology social workers stand for is giving patients on their terms permission to live with, through, and beyond what they're dealing with, with a level of empathy and acceptance. Yeah, I love the way you said that. And I think that that, that's what I find myself doing, whomever I'm sitting with, honestly. So whether that's a cancer patient or somebody that's struggling through a divorce or somebody that's racked with fear of coronavirus, right? So it's how do you accept, oof, and that word acceptance isn't like rainbows and unicorns, but how do you allow that feeling of whatever it might be? anger, loss, uh, fear, uncertainty, how do you let it be there? And at the same time, focus on what's in front of you. And when you find that other people are doing that same work of letting a really hard, heavy feeling sit with them at the same time that they're engaging in their lives, then you feel less alone in that. But I think before, if we try to fight away those feelings, like your doctor saying, Hey, just get over it or move on. You can't, you can't beat those feelings into submission. <laughs> I mean, they're there. You have to be able to learn how to tolerate it and, and live with it. Back with our guest after the break. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So I want to move to the conversation around what it's like to be a caregiver, a professional caregiver, a therapist, and the fatigue that onsets by just 
doing it over and over again, watching people die, managing massive emotional conversations, and then COVID hits, and it changes the way you have to just live your own life with your own personal responsibilities. What's it been like for you? Yeah, well, it's been uh, it's been hard. I mean, it's been hard for all of us, right? And I would say uniquely, it is the first time ever where, um, as a therapist, you sit, you know, you 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 really work to. I cannot be in somebody's shoes, right? I can't. I can't. They're they're living their life, but I can work to really understand them and to walk alongside them, you know, in that way. But really, this has been an op- This has been a, a time when. I get it. Like, you know, the, not, I don't have a cancer diagnosis. I don't have those other factors and complexities of their lives, but man, I'm also in the middle of a pandemic and we're also all home and it's long and it's hard and exhausting. So some, in a way that I never have in my profession before, I can share that with my clients. I can join them and normalize and say, Hey, I'm with you in this and I'm finding this. And what about you? And, and you would never do that as a therapist usually, right? It's not about you, but, but I find that there's something bridging, like a bridge in that. I would say too, that my clients are walking in the door with all of the same hardship that they've always had, right? People are walking in my door going through really hard divorces. People are walking in my door with cancer diagnoses that are, you know, new, are ongoing, are chronic. People are walking in my door with all kinds of, you know, things going on. But what we don't have is we don't have all of the uh, the ways that we find perspective usually and balance. And so it's really calling on um, our, just how we care for ourselves and other very creative, are just personal ways. It's it's harder. It's it's a heavier lift. Right. You're balancing burnout with running your own life. So where does the therapist go for therapy? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and people ask me that all the time. Before I said, I think that therapy needs to be kind of considered like the mental gym. So I'd like to think, <laughs> I believe me, I don't have it all together. I'm human, just like everybody else. And I have moments of just crumbling and being irritable and barking at my children or my husband. I have those moments, certainly. But I also would like to think that um, because I am doing this work, that I have all, am also cultivating and building those muscles in myself too. So I do notice that I am taking time to stop and just notice my feelings a lot more. And that might sound totally kooky, but it's the way I do it. Like I, I also mock my feelings. I tell my, and that sounds like I'm being sorry, like diminishing my feelings, but I find that that kind of takes some steam out of the air. Like for example, this today, my kids have been home from school e-learning all week and that's busy i've got four kids and it's they're all over the house doing all different things and intercoming me for like a blue marker and telling their teacher on repeat that the screen is frozen and i'm like oh my god right <laughs> and it's constant right and and it and we found at lunch i was just a little mind numb right so i can note so as a therapist and what i would be encouraging my clients to do is hey notice what you're feeling notice what's going on don't try to grit through and power through this notice it. And so I'm kind of saying to myself, 
okay, I'm feeling numb. I'm feeling kind of just a sense of overwhelm and exhaustion. I'm really needing some space. I'm really needing some quiet. And in the midst of that, my behavior could have been to snap and yell at everybody else. Instead, I kind of mock that and I began doing a dance around my kitchen. I'm like, mommy needs to be alone. I need to be alone in the house. Everybody <laughs> needs to go to the room. And they think that's hilarious. But it's also me saying, yo, I'm human here and you're all going to need to clear out and give mama some space for a hot second. So I think we just need to be able to recognize what we're feeling and what we're needing underneath that. Yeah, you've always been able to come off with a, a demeanor in a way that I've said, I've never want to be in a room where Julie loses her shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been in the room where you lose your shit, but I can only imagine how well you... Actually, this ties to another question. You have a background in theater. And I do. I wanted to really ask you if you feel that having that background supports and helps you deal with the inanity of what we have to deal with every day, plus keeping centered on the personality and person you want and have to be to your clients. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta chew on that question a little bit. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, um, I've always found that being able to almost like pretend to be a character in certain moments helps me on the defensive side to protect what I want to keep inside and then still support the people that I'm talking to. Well, I also, so like to, to go back to my reference of like singing my feeling or like mocking my kind of whatever, it a little bit takes the, the air out of it. It takes the edge, the bitey corners off of that. I was feeling in that moment, if I'm being very honest or I kind of like close my eyes and think about it, I was feeling irritated. I was feeling done. I mean, I was feeling exhausted. I was feeling kind of like I just wanted space and I was annoyed and I was exhausted, right? And so I, I if once you notice that feeling, you, then you no longer are letting the feeling drive the bus, right? You got to name it and notice it. Otherwise, the feeling's driving the bus. And if the feeling's driving the bus, then I could be yelling and screaming at everybody. But the moment I notice the feeling, then I can make a choice. And often my choice is to kind of put some humor or some pizzazz or some silliness with it because for me maybe it's my performer side of me but for me it takes the steam out of it it takes the edge off of it so I sang about the fact that I needed some space and I danced around my kitchen and my kids hear that but it also for me made it less heavy made it less intense now other times I'll just leave and walk out of the room and kind of just go escape you know but I do think that my background as a performer does give me a way of kind of animating the way I talk or the way I connect and engage with people that helps them to kind of feel that. I mean, people talk to me all the time about a sense of real presence or engagement when they're sitting with me. And I, I think that my performer piece of me um, does that to help people kind of connect and engage. I'm going to write a song called Daddy Just Wants to Be Alone and Drink His Bourbon on the Curb. Leave me alone right now. Go away. I want to be alone. I legit want you to try it. Like the next time you are feeling like kind of irritable and ang and like annoyed, I want you to just bust into the daddy wants to be alone with his bourbon song and see if it a little <laughs> bit changes the feeling. I, I just want you to experiment. I sound, That's what I sound like as a therapist. I want you to just watch between now and the next time we talk and just to experiment with this, mocking the feeling and seeing if that just kind of changes it for you a little bit, makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> I have to decide if it's going to be a Sondheim style or a Stephen Schwartz style or an Andrew Lloyd Webber style, but I'll, I'll choose accordingly. 
And I don't mean that in any way to minimize how we're feeling or to kind of dismiss ourselves. I mean, I think that the feeling, we have to honor it. We have to be okay with it. But on the other hand, we can also choose what we do with it, right? There are healthy or not so healthy ways of responding or reacting to our feelings. So one thing I think you're uniquely qualified for, and by you, I mean people who've been in the business before social media, is watching social media become something we embraced and really helped and then turned into something really horrible that ruined everything and mm. now figuring out how it can actually make a difference to the right people in the right moment. What are your thoughts on the emergence, the downfall, and the potential positive resurgence of the value of online communities? Oh, man. Wow. That, again, you, you, you asked these mighty questions, Matt. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> I think that social media has the, such potential for good, right? Such potential for connection and finding information and, and inspir in, information, inspiration, connection, support, reassurance, comfort, all of those things. Also the possibility of leading us down a mind numbing rabbit hole, right? And to me, I'm going to come back to, it all comes down to your awareness. So what's happening for you as you are consuming social media? Do you even know? Do you even know what's happening for you, right? Are you kind of losing track and going into like a vortex of like time suck, right? Or are you feeling kind of inspired? Are you feeling informed? Are you feeling empowered? Are you feeling like a sense of jealousy or competition? You got you to know what's going on for you. And I, I can watch that for myself. I mean, I know that there are times when I am tired or feeling kind of listless or unmotivated and I go to social media more, right? I turn to it just like as mind numbing. Then you have to recognize that and put limits on that and be able to turn away from it. So I think it comes to kind of your own recognition of how it's working or not working for you. The perspective I have on social media was I remember back in 2007, Stupid Cancer had a page on MySpace. And it was <laughs> the very first time, at least as a cancer survivor that wanted like a community, people were chiming in with ideas. And it was very collaborative. It was community. It was nice. There were no like evil things and hate. There was nothing there. It was very innocent early days. And then we moved into the world where then the haters showed up and it became a contest. And then it, it became like an infighting show. Twitter became the worst thing ever. But where I'm going with this is I'm finding today, I'd love your thoughts on this particular observation. The self-policing nature of smaller groups is the new normal in where people are finding I don't want to say safe space, but patients mm -hmm. have really become their own guardians of themselves now mm -hmm. and have sifted the crazies out of the conversations in a way that wasn't even possible a couple of years ago. But we kind of had to go through the mire of stupidity first. Mm -hmm. To be able to be able to say, hey, this isn't this is OK and this is not OK to recognize our limits and our boundaries. Right. That people are then standing up for those or, or asserting that more strongly or more thoughtfully now as they gather in small groups. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, because it used to be, oh, come on in. And now it's if you don't like it, change the channel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or it, it, that's not OK here. You know, that that that's not that doesn't work in this group. Do you still refer patients to certain online communities that are relevant and valuable, cancer or otherwise? I do. Yeah, I do. Be I, I do because I think that isolation is 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 a risk factor for anxiety and depression. So 
you know, people need each other. We, we are hardwired for connection. So I think that people do need to find each other, but I always do it with the disclaimer of when you do this, when you engage in these communities, because I work with a lot of people with infertility as well. And that's another very isolating, you know, issue. And, and so when you, if you're, if you're seeking this out and when you're going that you're going to need to walk into the room with, you know, your, your volume turned really up on how you're doing, like, how are you doing? How is this feeling? How is this working for you? Is it working or is it not? And continually check in on that and finding the groups that don't do and don't work for you. So yes, I do still refer people to find others. And often if people are in remote areas, their only option is online. Um, But I do that with a lot of caution. So wrapping up, I have, again, there are no simple questions with me, especially when we're talking. (laughs) No, no. Maybe that's what you should call this. No, no No simple questions. no simple question. I think I was like, I listened to a pod, I listened to a podcast called No Stupid Questions. I love those I love, stupid questions. Shout out to those it's guys. It's so great. Yeah, right? we, we can deviate but, deviate off into an entire conversation on analysis of the No Stupid Questions podcast. <laughs> so, dear listeners, check out the No Stupid Questions podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just, I'm a big fan. You'll love it. Anyway, end of sequitur. My question <laughs> for you, Julie, is, you know, you have given so many talks and been part of so many panels and witnessed so much positive systemic change in the acceptance of mental health as a necessity to endure bad things. Is there any one common theme that maintains the most consistency across all these years for you? Is it isolation? Is it the need for peer support? Is it access? Where do you square that circle? I think it's the need for access. I would say the need for access. And by access, I mean many different things. Information, awareness. I find again and again what gets in the way of maybe the way in which somebody progresses, our um, copes, our shifts over time, is their awareness of what's available to them and their awareness, our information around how is this going to go down for me, right? So often, why is it that I still hear from people, nobody told me that I would be feeling this crappy six months after treatment ended? No one said that to me. And we we know that depression is very common for people post-treatment, post-active treatment, right? So I think that I think that when people aren't given the information or the access to support services or resources in general, that that affects how they, how they do. And so, um, I think it comes down to just really, how do we, how do we continue to dispel information? You're entering a store that you never wanted to shop in in the first place. And how are you expected to know what to experience when you get into that store when you don't plan to ever want to be in that store, basically? And, and, and yeah. that, you, that you didn't even realize that you needed to go back to aisle 32 in the far back left corner. But that one's pretty important by about month 18. You know, so you don't know all of the things that are in that store and why they're necessary or that maybe you will need them. And the, the tricky thing is, is some people do and some people don't. But I think we need to have a little... We are already, and to your point, we have seen so much change. And wow, things have things have really shifted since when I since I started in oncology supportive care to now. But I think there's always room to grow. There's always room to kind of continue to improve the way in which we care for for survivors and, and people in general. We've come so far, and there's always much more to go. Julie Larson, speaker, educator, psychotherapist, personal friend, and luminary of the young adult <laughs> cancer advocacy movement. I mean it. I love That's you. That's what it says on my door. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bronze that on anything you'd like in your life. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.